Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. Okay, the title of my message is Linguini Envy and Hot Lava Hurricanes. Linguini, Envy, and Hot Lava Hurricanes. Uh, my wife and I, uh, Gretchen, we have three kids together. And uh, man, our, we love our family. They're amazing. They're almost all teenagers now, which kind of like freaks us out a little bit. This is a, our, one of our most recent uh, family photos. A little windy that day. Don't know if you guys can tell. A <laughs> little bit of wind there. Um, but we just rolled with it. We rolled with it. And, um, you know, my kids, uh, I feel like, they like our family, and I feel confident about that. And just as I'm getting really confident about that, they say something that makes me doubt it. Um, and I don't know if you've had this experience, those of you that are parents as well. Like my kids will go over to somebody else's house and have a real good time doing something that we don't normally do or maybe don't even allow them to do or don't have the ability to do. And then they'll come back and tell me how great it was. And then I'm just like, why don't you go live with them? You know, I don't say that. But I feel it sometimes in my heart, you know. Um, I remember a little while back, one of our kids went over to somebody's house and they, they came back. And I'm like, how was it? And they were like, it was the best. It, it might have been the best night of my life. I'm like, best night of your life. I mean, come on. I mean, we've had some good times around here. And they're like, yeah, anyway, Dad. Um, I'm like, what did you do that was so amazing? And they're like, they, we made pasta from scratch. Never done it before. Some of you are like, ooh, who is this family? I would like to go maybe be adopted by them. You're 45, okay? They're not looking. And I was like, what was it like? And they're like, yeah, they had a pasta maker, and we made like this pot. We like, we got, we made the dough, and we rolled it out, and we were laughing, and then there was like a, like a flower fight, you know, and, and then we rolled it out, we put it in the thing, and it came out, and then we cooked it, and it was like so delicious, and we all just like sat around the kitchen island, and we were like eating this homemade pasta and laughing with their family, and it was just so amazing, you know, and this is the point where I definitely was thinking like, Yeah, well, if they're so great, why don't you go live at their house, okay? And you can make your precious pasta every day. But I didn't say that, you know? I tried to, like, talk up our family. I'm like, we we, we do some cool stuff too, you know? I mean, I can't do all that. I mean, I got an Olive Garden uh, coupon that I found, and we could go do some of that. They got breadsticks, okay? And you can have all the salad. You know, kids love salad. Um, You know, I could drive you through Fazoli's or something, you know what, we're, we got, we're good at stuff too, okay? And I don't know if you've ever had this sense of just like, man, our family maybe isn't as good as another family. That's a horrible feeling to have, especially when you feel like you're giving it your best shot, um, but maybe you're just not like other people. The thing that wrecks me that my kids, all my kids have said to me at one time or another, they didn't mean it hurtfully, uh, but I'm a little sensitive and it got me in a weird way. It's just like, man, I, I wish... I wish I could be in a fun family. Has anybody's kids ever said this? My vi- just kick them out. Just kick them out. No, I'm just kidding. They don't know, right? And, and the, the thing of it is, though, 
I, we're this family sometimes too. Sometimes kids come over to our house and we give them such a great experience. It's so easy. They're not my kids. <laughs> and then we just get to have all this fun and do all this cool stuff that we never do. You know, we pretend like we do. And then we send them back. You know what I mean? We send them back to their families. And then as soon as they're out the door, I'm like, all right, short time. Let's get this going. You know, and we do our normal stuff. But man, this, this sense of like, I want to be in a fun family, it can cut right to the heart you know, of us as parents who are trying to do our very best job. And yet, you know, this isn't really just a kid thing. I wonder if you have ever looked at the person that you've linked your life up with and you've thought this as a couple. You look around at other couples and you're just like, man, I wish I could be a part of a fun couple. (laughs) Maybe we were that couple once, but that was a long time ago. Like, we're so boring. Our lives are so predictable. Why can't we be fun like other couples? They just got back from Hawaii. That sounds awesome. And you're like, babe, you don't even like the beach. I know. (laughs) But I still kind of want to go for the pictures. But we can't afford it. We just got that hot water heater, okay? And that took all the Hawaii money. That's what I'm saying. We're boring. They're on a naturally hot beach. Now we can shower in hot water. That's not comparative. It feels sad to me. And this is the thing that we can recognize when we're looking around at other people, whether it's in person or online, that the more uneventful our lives feel, the more unbelievably happy everyone else's appears. When you're going through a moment where you feel like you're just sort of slogging it out, you're going through the motions, you're just checking out the boxes, You're just trying to make sure that you have hot water in the house and the air conditioner works and that people show up places on time and the bills are paid. Like when you look around at all of the things that everyone else is doing, it just seems like everybody else is in a fun family and you're stuck with these people. (laughs) Everyone else is in a good couple, but for some reason you shacked up with them. (laughs) And now it feels like it's too late for us. I mean, I don't know if we're ever going to get to that place. You start thinking, like, we should have a house like that. We, how come we don't go on trips like that? We should have their beach bodies. Why don't we throw dinner parties like that? You know, and maybe your partner is just like, I don't know, because we're in our 40s, and we have three kids, and we don't make that much money, and we both really like ice cream. These are all reasons <laughs> we're not going to have their photos, okay? And I like this about us. I don't know why you're so discontent. And when things aren't the way that we thought they would be, we can have these moments where we wonder if we're in the wrong family. And I wonder if you've had this moment where you have seen something on social media or even just gotten to know somebody else's life a little bit, at least on the surface, and you were willing, at least in your own heart, to trade what you have for what they have, or at least what it looks like they have. Because that's really what you wanted, but you're stuck with this. And part of the reason that I think we get to this place is that we have this idea of like, man, isn't the, isn't the point of any relationship, especially with family, to make you happy? Isn't that why we signed up for this thing? I mean, nobody gets married thinking like, hopefully in a couple years, oh man, all the magic will be gone and we'll spend most of our time just fighting about money. Oh God, I hope <laughs> that's what's coming. Oh. That's not what John and Mariah are thinking this weekend. That's not what they're dreaming about. So putting together this wedding. Nobody has kids thinking like, oh, hopefully they'll cry a lot 
and we won't get any sleep, and then everything that the other person does will annoy us because we're sleep-deprived, and we'll fight all the time, and then we'll overeat to mask the stress, and we'll gain a bunch of weight, and then we'll feel sad, and then we'll have to take antidepressants so that we can continue raising these little bundles of sunshine that are going to grow up to hate us. (laughs) Hashtag family. No! We don't think any of these things. We go into these things thinking that it's going to make us happy because we've been sold this American dream and convinced that we can raise the perfect Instagram family. And then we're delusioned like, um, and disillusioned when we realize this is not our reality, but we assume maybe it's somebody else's. If happiness, this is the danger of this, if happiness is our goal, then any frustration or discomfort feels like a relational red flag. Like, what's going on? I'm supposed to be happy, and I'm not. So maybe we're not right for each other. Maybe this isn't right. Maybe we're doing everything wrong. Which is why, if we're not happy, we see it as our right to blame, punish, or withdraw. If you're not making me feel like I want to feel at all times, then I have a right to pull out. I have a right to make your life miserable in return. I have a right to blame you for my frustration and disappointment, for my expectations being dashed. I have the right to sort of push your buttons and do the little things that I know sort of torture you because I'm feeling tortured by you, even though you don't even know that you're torturing me. But I'll let you know passive-aggressively. Don't you worry. And this is sort of how so many of us live our lives. And we end up saying things like, you know what, when I'm 18, I'm out of here. You know, like things were great between us until the kids came along. I don't think this is what love feels like. I think there's something wrong with these people. Most of you have said that. We've grown apart. You know, it's just, it's just too hard now. I don't, I don't think I can do this anymore. But I got to tell you, if God's goal for family is just for us to be happy then a lot of the advice that he gives us about relationships in Scripture really doesn't make any sense. Because it's advice aimed at a different sort of goal. Like, let me just give you an example of this from the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. It says this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands in everything. Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. Children, obey your parents and honor your father and mother. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Now, here's the thing I want you to understand. This feels like really bad advice if you're just trying to be a fun family. If that's the ultimate goal. Because I don't know that I'm going to feel happy When I'm submitting, when I am folding or bowing my will to someone else's and putting what is good for them at the moment over what I want for me, that doesn't always make me feel happy, which makes me sort of wonder, like, maybe God has a different goal for family. And if he does, what is it? What is God's goal for family? John chapter 10, verse 10, he says this. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. 
And my purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life. Another translation says it this way, to give you life to the full or a fulfilling existence. And I got to tell you, like when I read this verse and then I look at our culture, I look at the number of divorces and broken homes and kids in foster care who cannot get fostered and teen suicide rates. It seems like there's a lot of stealing and killing and destroying going on in families, which means that our cultural way of doing it isn't working. Like we're pursuing happiness and God is advising us toward fulfillment, which is why like sometimes we push aside his suggestions for our lives because we're like, well, I don't think that's going to make me feel happy right now. And he's like, oh, no, no, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get you to aim at something better, higher fulfillment, a rich and satisfying life. Because there is a difference between happiness and fulfillment. Let me, let me just like break these two things down for you so you can see how they diverge. Happiness is a fleeting feeling of pleasure rooted in getting what you want, right? When you want something and you get it, you feel happy, right? But fulfillment is something different. Fulfillment is a sustained sense of contentment rooted in wisdom, camaraderie, and purpose. It's rooted in a sense that like you know what to do and when to do it in the right moment, that you have people in your life that aren't going anywhere, that will love you no matter what, that have your back no matter what, that share your value system, that are encouraging you to be the best version of yourself, and a sense that what you're doing with your everyday life is adding up to something that is significant, that matters. And sometimes, like the things that we do that actually access fulfillment don't make us feel happy in the moment. See, happiness is an emotion. Fulfillment is a state of being. Happiness is about desire. Fulfillment is about meaning. Happiness is based on preferences. Fulfillment is based on values. So in God's mind, the purpose of family isn't always to make us happy, but to help us become holistically healthy. And all the advice in Scripture is aimed at that end. Interestingly, pursuing fulfillment actually does result in happiness. Like we know this statistically and scientifically, not just scripturally. But pursuing happiness often sabotages our fulfillment. And if we don't understand this, we'll spend our lives chasing a feeling instead of what's fulfilling. And there are so many people who are busy chasing a feeling and actually access happiness and then feel hollow because they got happy but they sacrifice their health in the process. Their physical, emotional, spiritual, intellectual, relational health. And so they got a feeling that burnt off really quick and they let go of what's fulfilling. And nobody feels good about that trade. But here's the reality. Every one of us is doing one or the other. We're either pursuing a feeling or we are trying to aim our lives at what's fulfilling. And whichever thing that you are doing 
actually doesn't just affect you, it, it impacts every decision you make for and about your family. And I wanna give you an example of sort of how this works and can go really wrong really quick um, from a family in scripture. This is all the way back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 13. And it says this, Lot and Abram had both become wealthy. Now they're relatives, right? But the land could not support both their flocks. And finally, Abram said to Lot, let's not allow this conflict to come between us. We're family. How many of you have heard this before? Let's not fight. We're family. Using the same argument here. Verse 9, he says this. Take your choice of any selection of the land that you want. If you want the land on the left, I'll take the land on the right. If you prefer the land on the right, I'll go to the left. You know how directions work. And here's the question that Abram is really asking. And we do this a lot in family. We ask a surface question, but we're really trying to get a, a deep answer. And sometimes we don't realize that that is what is being fished for. But here's the real question that's being asked here. Where do you want to raise your family? Lot, where and how do you want to raise your family? And this is a question all of us eventually have to answer. And the decision that you make in that moment is the same as every decision, big decision that you end up making in life. The decisions you make are dependent on the priorities you have, the values you hold, and the goals that you pursue. Whether you realize it or not, whether you're doing this on purpose or not, every decision that you make, even if you are making it subconsciously for these reasons, is based on your priorities, values, and goals. And so what does Lot do? And how does this reveal what's important to him? It says this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. Lot took a long look at the fertile plains of the Jordan Valley. The whole area was well watered everywhere. Like the garden of the Lord or the beautiful land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> Here's what's funny. I did not put that in there. This is in the original text. Okay? How about that for foreshadowing? right? Like we're being told like this land that this guy just picked, he's like, you can have whatever you want to. And the kid's like, oh, that looks good. I want that. It looks good, but we're being told in the foreshadowing from the narrator, it's not good. In fact, it's going to get destroyed. And so you might want to pay attention to where this story is going. It says this in Genesis chapter 13, um, as we skip ahead, it says that uh, so Lot went there, and the people in this area were extremely wicked and consistently sinned. Abram moved his camp to Hebron and settled near an oak grove, and there he built another altar to the Lord. So Lot moves his family to a place that looks good, but is filled with people who are not good. And Abram moves to a place that doesn't look good, and then thanks God for the consolation prize. Interesting. Do you do that? Like when, when you're like, God, this would be nice. And he's like, how about this? And you're like, thank you, God. We're usually like, right? That's when you exercise your Christian cuss words or just your regular ones, whatever, whatever you're doing. And then not much else happens until chapter 19, right? Which is interesting. There's this sort of lull 
in like the narrative and what is happening here because for a while things are fine, at least from the outside looking in. But I got to tell you, just because it takes time for decisions based on faulty values to wreak havoc doesn't mean it's not on its way. And after many chapters of waiting, it starts getting a little messed up. Actually, a lot messed up. I don't want to sugarcoat this for you guys. This is going to get rough here for a minute. Genesis chapter 19, verse 1 says this. One evening, two angels came to the entrance of Sodom, and Lot saw them, and he stood up to meet them. Come to my home and be my guest for the night. Then get up early and be on your way. (laughs) Oh, no, they replied. We'll just spend the night out here in the city square. And he was like, no, no, no. You guys should actually just come over. Um, He seems like he really doesn't want them sleeping outside. But he doesn't want to tell them why. You get the feeling that this place that Lot lives in now for some time, that he knows that like what happens in this city, especially at nighttime, is not good or safe or moral. And he doesn't want to tell them that. Because he's realizing that the compound effect of, of some of the choices that he's made based on doing what looks good as opposed to what is good is actually not turning out good. And so they go back to his place. And then it says this, Genesis chapter 19, verse 4. It says, but before they retired for the night, all the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded the house. Where are the men who came to spend the night? Bring them out so we can all have sex with them. Some of you are like, I did not see that coming. Um, Neither did the angels. (laughs) Here's the footnote. Not a great place to raise a family. Not a good neighborhood. Not a great city. Not a great place to be. It looked good, but it wasn't. And we know from the foreshadowing earlier, you guys remember that? That God destroys this city. And because of the super uncomfortable mob scene that we all just read, it'd be easy to assume that the reason that God destroyed this city was because of their sexual practices. But here's what is so interesting about this. When you look at what is told and talked about about these cities by God's prophets who come later, that's not the case. And this is something that I find endlessly fascinating. If you go to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 16 Ezekiel, who is a prophet of God, speaking to the people on behalf of God, is comparing their horrible behavior and how they are misleading and misguiding their families to Sodom. And this is what he identifies as being so horrible about that place. He says, Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, and laziness. While the poor and needy suffered outside her door, she was proud and committed detestable sins, and so I wiped her out. In other words, Sodom's downfall was prioritizing the pursuit of unbridled pleasure above everything else. And this is why this makes me feel nervous, because our culture does much the same. 
Like, this is a description of us. Like, and their pursuit of unbridled happiness, it made them prideful and gluttonous and lazy. And these are not the attributes God wants describing his family. And I would hope that they're not the attributes you want describing yours. But the problem is, these are the primary preoccupations of our culture. And so, unless you intentionally steer your family towards something else, you'll all get swept up just like everyone else. Because you end up just being like the people you spend most of your time with. You end up being like the values that you immerse yourself in. You end up being like the places that you spend most of your time. This is how people work. What do these things even mean? Let me just define these three things that God thinks are so evil and so horrible that he destroys a city because of them. Pride. Pride is the drive to be seen as superior to someone else. Gluttony. Gluttony is the over-consuming of anything to avoid facing your feelings. Food, clothes, anything that you could purchase, do, experience. Oh man, if I could just do this or have this, I don't need it, but I want it, and it'll make me feel better. It'll drown out my lack of fulfillment with a temporary feeling of happiness. Laziness is responding to dissatisfaction with distraction in place of meaningful work. I don't like this part of my life, but I don't want to have to face it and work on it. And so you know what I'm going to do? Anything else. Pride, gluttony, and laziness. And what these definitions reveal is that most of us indulge in all three of these on a regular basis. And the fact that they're common may lead you to believe that they're not that big a deal. But this is not the case, at least in the mind of God. Think about it. Like this, this passage, this story that we just read, it outlines probably the most depraved scene of sexual perversion in all of Scripture. And yet when God recounts his core frustrations with this city through his prophets, he doesn't mention it. Instead, you know what he says? You know what really bothers me about you people? You're prideful, gluttonous, and lazy. And interestingly, when God talks about his vision for family in the New Testament, he repetitively highlights the inverse of all three of these vices. I'll just read you one example where, where this happens. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 3, this happens to be actually our, our theme verse at South Hills for the year. It says this, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. What is he describing? Pride. Be humble. That's the inverse. Thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interest, just doing whatever you can to make yourself feel happy. You know what that is? Gluttony. But take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude as Christ. Though he was God, he gave up his divine privileges and took on the humble position. Humble position, that's contentment. No matter what position I find myself in, no matter what needs to be done, I'm willing to do it. I can find happiness and fulfillment inside of it. And he took on the humble position of a servant, which is service, which is the opposite of laziness. And I got to tell you this, the point of family according to the entire New Testament, 
is to cultivate Christ-centered living. Christ-centered living. That you and your kids and everybody connected to you, that the more they're in your family and in your orbit, the more their behavior looks like the behavior of Jesus. Not that the more they're with you, they know more about the Bible. That's great. But if being educated about the Bible doesn't affect your behavior to be more like Jesus, it's taking you in the wrong direction. And we aim at Christ-centered living by prioritizing the three values that actually counteract the vices that we find in the city of Sodom. Humility, contentment, and service. This is the inverse of pride, gluttony, and laziness. And I'll just define these things for you. Humility is this. Humility is a willingness to listen to and learn from others regardless of their status. Oh, you don't have a a degree. Oh, you're not as old as me. Oh, you don't know as much. Oh, you haven't done that. Now, there's something I can learn from every single person. And actually, after all my study, there are still things for me to learn and know and experience and draw from others. Contentment is a sense of gratitude and satisfaction with what you have right now. It's the opposite, right, of this desire for Gluttony of like, I just need, I have this, but like, I'm not going to be happy unless I get a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. I need that. I need to go there. I need to have that. I need to possess this. I need to do this. I need to achieve this. And contentment is the opposite of that. And then there's service, which is working to benefit others without expecting anything in return. And to bring it back to our Genesis story, these are the three values Abram demonstrates in the way he leads his immediate family. He tells his nephew, you know what? You pick first. You pick first, I'll take what's left. That's service. You, okay, you, you the kid, you want the best portion for yourself? Whoo! Okay. Humility. Wow. And then the first thing that Abram does When he gets the thing that he didn't want, he still sees it as a blessing from God. And he honors him with his less than ideal situation. That's contentment. Quick pop quiz, okay? Which one of these guys' lives resulted in them losing everyone and everything they had in a hot lava hurricane? Just... I'm not saying your family's going to die in a hot love or hurricane. Don't tell people that. But here's what I am saying. Whatever you prioritize in your family shapes the outcome of your family. And to be clear, your priorities aren't what you say, they're what you do. And I think this is why a lot of you that may be new with us here are just like, man, I really didn't want to come here today because I've known a lot of horrible Christians I didn't come for Jesus today. I came for Mario. (laughs) If you want to advertise that, I don't know that I would be here because there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians and they're like, these are my priorities. But then what they do and how they live, those things don't look much like Jesus. And here's the thing. You can convince yourself that you really care about and what is most important to you is any number of things. But people are so good at self-deception. How good are you at lying to yourself? You know who's harder to lie to? People watching your life. And I gotta tell you, especially if your parents, 
You can tell your children that your priorities are whatever you wish they were, but they know that your priorities are whatever it is you do and demonstrate in front of them. And for some of us, the reason our kids go a different direction than we set out for them is because we tell them to care about something that they have never seen from us. And that's hard to face. Because a lot of us, we make decisions based on what we think will make us and those around us most happy. And what we don't realize in our pursuit of trying to make ourselves and them happy, we do things that really don't help any of us become more physically, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally healthy. So how do we change? I think our values are established and exposed by three things. The first is this, what you make your decisions based on, like how you actually decide what you're gonna do. I'm gonna go here because they're gonna pay more. There's not a good church anywhere near there. Right, that's a decision based on a value that may not be what you want it to be. Number two is what we require of those we have authority over. Whatever you make people do when you have the control demonstrates what you actually care about. Oh, we show up to our sports practices in this family because we keep our commitments. I mean, we don't go to church consistently and it's okay to lie, but like, listen, we don't miss a game together, you guys. And it's also what we do in front of and alongside each other because values are more caught than taught, right? Like our kids end up being just reflections of who we are, not what we say. And if you're in this place where you're sort of examining maybe the outcome of your values and you have never thought that like, oh, these decisions are actually based on what I care about and what I'm showing my kids is most important, then man, I don't necessarily like what that is. And so how do I shift direction? And here are just some quick suggestions. I just suggest you take a picture of these or something that will sort of shift your family in a different direction. The first thing I would say is this, to set aside some focus time to talk about things that really matter. I can't tell you how many people that I spend time with and disciple who are just like, wow, this is great. And I'm like, what's great? And they're like, you know, talking about things that matter. We never did that in my family growing up. And there's a starvation for it. And we're gonna help you by giving you an actual devotional. Uh, 30 days of devotionals that you can read on your own with your family, with your friends. I would suggest you do it with your family. It'll get you talking about things that matter. Take 10 to 15 minutes a couple times a week. You don't even have to do all seven days, just a couple times a week. Put your phones away. Look the people in front of you in the eye. Ask open-ended questions. And this one's key. Don't overreact when their real answer isn't what you want it to be. Because if you overreact when their answer isn't what you want it to be, they'll start giving you fake answers. And you don't want that. The second thing I would suggest is this, to do stuff together that doesn't involve screens. And it almost doesn't matter what it is. The point is just logging side-by-side -side time because quality time together builds trust. I would tell you, if you want a voice in someone's life, whether that is 
you know, your spouse, you're your part of the person that you're seriously dating or engaged, your kids, your parents, your in-laws, that if you want a voice in your life, you're gonna have to be involved in their life. You're gonna have to do things side by side to earn the right to speak into their life. The third thing I would suggest is this, to make a list of what you like about each other and then tell each other what's on it. Some of us, we are so frustrated with our family because we only focus on what frustrates us about our family. And that focus is determining how you see them. But writing down, meditating on, and sharing the good that you see in them, and the more specific you are, the better. It changes your interactions. When you start speaking life intentionally into the people around you, instead of just like, you should do this or you forgot to do that or I wanna see more of this from you, when you're actually affirming who they are and the trying that they're doing, it makes them better and it makes you treat them better because you start to see each other differently. And the last suggestion I would make is to do things together that benefit someone else. Like look for ways to collectively serve and help those inside and outside your family. The point is to join efforts and do something for others instead of making it all about yourself. I think some of us, we get to a place where like, man, my kids are so selfish. And you know the first question I would ask? How often are you all together serving others that can't pay you back? How would they learn that value if they don't experience it alongside you? I gotta tell you something. I make my kids serve. And it doesn't always make them happy. I don't care. You know why I don't care? Because I'm not aiming my family at being happy in every single moment. I want them to be healthy. And selfish people are not healthy. And ultimately, those who pursue happiness at all costs end up not being happy. Because they've traded a feeling for what's fulfilling. And here's the thing. You will not do any of this stuff unless you schedule it. You're going to have to set aside intentional time and energy and money in advance and specifically do these things. But if you follow through, which isn't easy to do if it's not your habit, what you will realize is that it ends up becoming worth it. It ends up becoming worth it in the long run. And I'll tell you this, I hope you have a lot of fun, happy times. I don't know. I may break down and buy a pasta maker. We don't know what's going to happen, you guys. I was like, that's stupid. And then later I was like, I don't know. That does kind of sound fun. And I did. I looked him up on Amazon after, okay? But more than that, I hope that you are monitoring the health of your family in all aspects. It is worth it. And the alternative is horrible. Ain't nobody trying to summon a lava hurricane. And you probably won't experience one of those physically. But some of us have found ourselves in the midst of a moment that feels like an emotional lava hurricane. And we look back and we realize that this moment 
is not just because of this moment. It's because of all the values-based decisions we made back here that we didn't even know we were making based on values because we didn't choose the values. They were given to us by our culture. Because we didn't intentionally aim our family in a different direction, we just became like everybody else around us. And most people are pursuing happiness and they're not happy. God has something more and better for you. And I want to challenge you to make it your priority. And this is what I want to pray into your life today. Would you bow your heads across this room? Uh, it just helps you focus in this moment. And here's what I want to say to you. With your eyes closed and your head bowed, thinking about your family, the state of things in your life, your marriage with your kids, with your parents, with your in-laws, with your cousins and aunts and uncles. And maybe you look at some of those things and you realize, man, there is some brokenness here. You're not just like starting out your family. You're a ways down the road. And it just feels like it is, it is too far gone. And I can tell you, this is the beauty of the Jesus story that even dead things can be brought back to life through the power of Jesus. What I want to pray into your life is that no matter what is broken and shattered, that God can breathe new life into that as you place your faith and hope and trust in him and not just believe in his direction, but begin to behave in his direction. I think all of family healing begins with determining to give your heart, your life, your faith, your trust to Jesus, to base who you are on what he says is best. And maybe today you find yourself in this place and God brought you here to face that decision, to either continue doing life your way, which seldom works out for the best, or to hand your life over to him and do it his way. And if you're in a place today where you're like, you know what? I need God's help. I need to give my way up and do life his way. And I want to invite that relationship to begin right here and now. With nobody looking around, would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you specifically today? I'm not going to call you up here. I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to know who I'm praying for today. Because whatever you want to see in your family starts with you. It starts with you. His hands up all over this place. And I want to encourage you, if you raised a hand, I'm going to say a prayer. And I want you to think about the words I'm saying and pray them along and mean them in your own soul. And for those of you who didn't lift a hand, I pray. I hope that you will pray along with these people. That God would change whatever he needs to heal, whatever he needs to restore, whatever he needs to in them, and that that ripple effect would transform everybody connected to them. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for the love that you give us. God, we're so grateful that no matter what we do, no matter what we say, no matter how badly we make a mess of our existence, that you are always there for us. That what you approach us with is not anger, 
It's love. God, you want to pick us up and dust us off. You want to forgive us and heal us. You want to begin putting the pieces of our lives and relationships back together. God, I I don't know what things have been done or been done to every person that raised a hand here today, but there is a certain level of desperation that pushes us to a place to say like, God, I can't do it by myself anymore. I need you. I need something way bigger and wiser and stronger than me. And God, I pray that today, as each of these people throw their lives in your direction, that give their will over to you, that determine that they are going to seek you, that they are going to trust you, that they are going to believe in you, that they are going to transform their behavior to mimic and model you, that you will transform them from the inside out. And God, I pray that even though it may be slow, it may take more time than they want, it may be one slow step at a time, that you would begin to transform their relationships, that you would breathe new life into marriages, families, interactions with in-laws. God, that you would begin to heal what wasn't just hurt, it was dead, and that you would bring it back to life. God, may you do the miraculous today as we put our faith and trust in you. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.